Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Hill, and this is another episode of The Weeds. 2022 was quite the year for all things climate change. We saw record-breaking heat. Today has been the hottest day ever recorded in Britain. The country baked under superheated air that sparked fires, buckled train tracks, and touched off a torrent of emergency calls. There were changes to EPA regulations. Tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court curbing the government's power to fight it. In a 6-3 decision, the court's conservative majority limiting the Environmental Protection Agency in how it regulates power plant emissions under the Clean Air Act. And we saw devastating floods. There have been more deaths in Pakistan as flooding worsens in parts of the country. There's been little let up in the rains, and the government has told people to take refuge on higher ground. The effects of our warming planet are evident. But today, we're not looking back. We're looking forward. Because there's actually some good policy news here. So I sat down with my colleague, Rebecca Lieber. She's a senior reporter here at Vox covering climate change. Rebecca, welcome to The Weeds. It's so great to be on. So we're talking about climate change and in particular looking ahead to 2023. But some of the biggest climate policy that we're going to see next year is actually the result of a 2022 piece of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. So I guess to start off, can you remind us of the scale of the IRA in particular when it comes to climate change? Yeah, so a lot happened this year with regards to domestic climate action, which is a pretty rare thing to say. (laughs) Democrats passed a massive climate bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, which included $369 billion to fight climate change by investing in things like clean energy, electric vehicles, all kinds of infrastructure, and cleaner manufacturing This was a really big deal because the U.S. has failed to pass any kind of climate legislation for decades. Mm. So this just marks the beginning of very sorely needed investment in these areas. So this bill is really wide sweeping. There's obviously a lot of money involved. But um, I want to focus in on some of the details of the issues it addresses. And a major part of it is implementing tax credits. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what tax credits for who? What is this going to do? 
So the biggest chunk of this bill is investing in a clean energy transition. There's a lot of money for companies and utilities to invest in things like solar and wind and also improving transmission. But what listeners are probably most interested to hear is all of the tax breaks for consumers. And there's a lot. There are going to be rebates that are targeted especially at low-income and middle-income consumers. And then there are tax credits that kick in January 1st that are much broader and cover things like buying an electric car, installing a heat pump or rooftop solar, and basically doing everything you might need to get your home off of fossil fuels and on to the grid. Doing that actually helps the consumer in multiple ways because it doesn't just cut your carbon emissions, but it also can reduce your energy bill because a lot of this technology is more energy efficient. So in the long run, you're actually slashing that energy bill by quite a lot. So these tax credits work in multiple ways and play into why this law is called the Inflation Reduction Act in the first place. I mean— It's right there in the title, inflation reduction. And I mean, we're all at the grocery store. We see the price of everything. But really thinking of climate change and addressing it as a way to reduce that. Energy is a major reason that prices have been going up. So I talked about this as a climate bill, which confuses some people because it's called Inflation Reduction Act. But it turns out when we target rising costs of energy, you're actually targeting inflation at the same time. Kind of like this galaxy brain thought I've been having is, you know, why do we have the will to do this now? And I guess it is inflation that kind of gave us the will to do this now. I think there were a lot of factors politically that made this the right moment and really the only moment that Congress could have done this. So Biden came into office promising big stuff on climate and also promising the world after Trump withdrew from the Paris Agreement. So they needed to deliver something, and this was the result of years of negotiations. Honestly, there was a point this summer where everyone thought it was dead because uh, Senator Joe Manchin had said he wouldn't support the original Build Back Better. And then, surprise, about a month or two later— They came out with the Inflation Reduction Act, which surprisingly preserved most of the climate spending. You can always argue that we need a lot more climate spending. We need a lot more across all these categories in terms of investment. But it does go at least a part of the way. And it shows the U.S. has some commitment to reducing its climate goals. Biden's goal for slashing climate pollution is reducing it by 50 percent by the end of the decade, which is Mm. a big goal. (laughs) I was about to say, we are, I mean, starting next year, we have like, what, seven years left to do that? That that sounds like a hefty, (laughs) that's a really hefty goal. Yeah, we're actually kind of half of the way there because oh. this is gets super wonky. But when Let's you're talking it. about base years of peak climate pollution, so um, usually the the base year that's used is 2005, which is a peak year for climate emissions in the U.S. So we actually are part of the way there, and that's largely because coal has been retiring. But the point that the Inflation Reduction Act is hopefully going to make a difference on is basically reducing coal to zero on the grid and replacing that with lots of solar and wind. 
There's also this really interesting provision I saw in the bill about environmental justice. Can you talk about that a little bit? The law is really interesting because it also codifies environmental justice in this really interesting way. It shows how far this conversation has come in just a few years. So lots of the law's provisions are directing 40 percent of the spending to frontline communities and these environmental justice communities that are affected by legacy pollution and are affected the most by the changing climate. So this is about investing in communities that have long lacked it. Mm. There's a lot of different programs in the Inflation Reduction Act that are really interesting once you unpack them. One that I like to point out is funding for removing highways and removing infrastructure that has been really harmful for certain communities by just placing this massive road in the middle of what was once a cohesive community. So this is a rare investment in actually acknowledging that these these kinds of projects did harm and then putting money to addressing that. There's other types of programs that are really interesting on the environmental justice. And I think another is the spending to electrify school buses because diesel emissions from school buses are really harmful Mm. and harmful for children. So another piece here is by electrifying more school buses, you're reducing that harmful pollution for the most vulnerable. I remember back in 2018, a friend of mine, Julia Craven, um, was a reporter for the Huff Post at the time, and she wrote this really amazing article about a Black neighborhood in Orlando and how just the highway had created so much pollution that it was just really affecting the poorest neighborhoods in that city. Yeah, these are huge problems. We basically don't just have the climate crisis on our hands. We also have decades of the effects from this pollution. Petrochemical plants being built in the southeast are placed overwhelmingly in communities of color. And we see this with coal plants. We see this with abandoned mines and oil wells that aren't cleaned up by the companies that left them behind. So the Inflation Reduction Act certainly doesn't have enough money for these priorities, but it does direct some of it there, which at least is a start on addressing those problems. I want to step away from the um, Inflation Reduction Act for a little bit and get into some of the other stuff we can look forward to the U.S. doing about climate change next year. So apparently we can also expect action for businesses regarding methane emissions. First, can you kind of lay out what our methane emissions look like right now? I mean, when I think of methane, I always think of cows. And what's going on there with that? So methane's really concerning because it's a lot more potent than carbon dioxide, and there's a lot less of it in the atmosphere, but those levels are rising. So over a 20-year period, methane is above 80 times more uh, powerful than carbon dioxide, and our concentration levels of methane are the highest they've ever been. So we are warming the planet a lot faster than we even thought because of those rising methane emissions. But methane is such a tricky policy area because it comes from so many different sources. Like you said, it comes from cows, but it also comes from landfills. A huge source for methane is oil and gas production, which is leaking out what essentially is natural gas, but 
is methane from lots of infrastructure all the way to when it is delivered to your house if your home runs on gas. So there's all these different sources for methane and trying to address them is really complicated because it's a lot more decentralized system than we see from a coal power plant. So the world's trying to make progress on this. Basically, we've been ignoring it for too long and It is a key factor if we actually meet global climate goals, whether we get methane emissions under control. And the U.S. has a really big role to play here. I think it's interesting that you talked about how decentralized it is. If if that's the case, next year, what's going to be done to help curb those emissions? If I'm going to make one bold prediction here, I think methane will see tons of progress next year. That's because of a few different events happening at the same time. One is we have a lot more data coming in about where the worst methane leaks are. So there are lots of satellites being launched this year and next year, which are collecting real-time data that tells us where the worst leakers are. Mm. So we can actually get more information about specifically which landfills are a problem or which oil and gas facility is the issue. Another event happening is the EPA has a bunch of methane regulations that it's been working on. So those are in draft stages. And those combined with better data hopefully start to bring down the worst polluters out there. Because lots of research has shown that methane is coming from lots of different sources, but typically the worst offenders, especially in oil and gas, are only a few companies. If we target these super emitters, that we can make the biggest difference in a short period. So in addition to the EPA rules, the Inflation Reduction Act also has something on methane. So there's a methane fee that will begin to charge oil and gas operators for excess amount of pollution that they're emitting. That kicks in 2024. So Mm. next year, we're going to see a lot more guidance on what this looks like combined with that better data. But now operators will have an actual incentive, including they they will hurt in the wallet if they don't actually recapture that methane. Like I said, methane is natural gas. So all of that gas can actually just be captured and used. This is fuel Mm. that's leaking out into the atmosphere. That sounds like a gigantic waste of money also for these companies. Like it also makes economical sense for them to do this. It totally does. And this has been a point made by the oil and gas industry saying they don't need regulation because this is money that they're letting escape. Mm. But clearly, it hasn't been enough of an incentive to recapture that methane. So that's why these regulations and fines can make a big difference. Are there any other ways they're trying to enforce these rules other than, you know, the fee that starts in 2024? Yeah, the EPA regulations will be huge there. Like you said, uh, enforcement is key. That's the biggest thing here because it's not enough just to have regulations on the books. You need to enforce them against these companies. So that's why I pointed out the satellite data because I think we actually have an accountability metric. Just having better data here will help in doing that because for a long time now, regulators which they're not enough of, would go out into the field having to monitor. So you can have a facility that one day isn't leaking methane, and then 
That's when the regulator visits. But then what happens if a few days later there is a massive leak? Mm. So that real-time data will be really important to the enforcement metric. There's another climate issue that you've been covering that's really interesting, and that's about our response to the planet warming. And, you know, I think anyone who has been outside (laughs) during this past summer knows that the Earth is just getting hotter and hotter. First, can you dive into the toll that that takes on our bodies? I know that when I think of climate change, I mostly think of things like natural disasters, but— I mean, this is having an impact on us right now. Heat's extremely dangerous, and we all have different heat tolerances. So what a elderly person can tolerate is very different from a young, healthy person. So basically, if you are exposed to prolonged heat, then you can get weakness, cramps, confusion, dizziness. And after a certain point, your vital organs can swell, Mm. which becomes life-threatening. So... With rising temperatures, I think this is a really overlooked area of the consequences of climate change because, like you said, we think more about the extreme weather events, but heat is one of the deadliest extreme weather events. And it tends to be overlooked. It's a silent killer. But we are seeing rising mortality rates and the effects this has, especially on the elderly, when temperatures rise. And we don't have the adequate protections in policy and in society to really protect people against this event. I think a lot of the time when we talk about policy and in particular climate change policy is this idea of like, okay, like how can we reverse the damage we've done? How can we stop it? But there's less of a conversation about, okay, this is the world we've created. How do we adjust and survive in it? I mean, what's being done about this like how are how are people staying safe is is there policy implementation taking place to make that happen we have to adjust to this changing world we also have to stop rising emissions so we have to do two things at once and both are really difficult tasks in terms of policy there's a lot we can do because this is such an overlooked problem we don't think about heat in the same way we think about cold The U.S. has a lot more protections around protecting people from extreme cold than we do for extreme heat. And I think if we're going to do something next year on this issue, there are a lot of really smart places to start. One is to enact the same types of protections we have for cold weather. So that would include passing policies that tell utilities they can't cut off someone's power in the middle of a heat wave just because of a missed bill. There have been actual instances of people dying because their utility cut them off, Mm. and it's devastating. And there are laws in place that prevent that for extreme cold temperatures, but the same protections don't exist in a lot of states for hot weather. Do we know why there are so many more protections for cold than for heat? Is there a reason for that? There is, or at least these are some theories why it's been set up this way. And some of this goes back to federal programs that have been set up around cold weather. LIHEAP, which is low-income home energy assistance, typically has focused on cold weather. It spends 85% of its funds on helping people pay their heating bills in the winter and much less of its funds for hot weather, where people can be running the AC and they do see high energy bills. 
So I think there might be a psychological reason as well Mm. that we tend to respond to what we're familiar with, which is cold. Heat, though, is not a southern versus northern issue. Like I said, this can affect the entire country in different ways. So a lot of this is just realigning federal and state programs so they actually look at heat. My parents live in California, and so California is known for just having absolutely gorgeous weather. And so they do not have AC. And this summer, oh my gosh, like they, people were checking into hotels because it was so hot and prices were going up. Like people would try to check into hotels and they'd be like, sorry, it's $500 a night. And it's just like, it's untenable. Yeah. My colleague Umer wrote a great story on Vox about how Maybe we should think about AC as a human right. Mm. And he also looked at this from the global perspective. A lot of people don't have AC. There's other kinds of consequences of the entire world switching to AC. But if we're talking about being prepared for the effects of climate change, I think just being smarter about how we handle the heat is, is a really important step. And I will just plug that AC is not always the only answer. There are things that we can do about our built environment that actually make it more comfortable to live in hot weather. And that goes to building design that includes having more trees in our cities. There are other things we can do, particularly in design, that help cope with the heat. So I know people immediately go to AC when they think about what they can do, but I like to argue that we should be thinking more holistically. Up next, we'll go beyond domestic climate policy and talk about the U.S.'s plans to combat climate change globally. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. This is The Weeds. I'm John Quinn Hill. Back now with my colleague, Rebecca Lieber. So we've talked about internal U.S. climate policy, but 
let's take a look at the United States' place on the global stage now. So we left the Paris Climate Agreement, and in 2021, we came back. Can you talk a little bit about the United States' relationship with the Paris Climate Agreement and kind of where we stand now globally when it comes to climate change, especially in the eyes of other countries? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot to get into (laughs) because, yeah, I think everyone is aware that Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. His argument was that this was imposing all of these requirements on the U.S. when that was just a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Paris Agreement was. Mm. Biden, of course, reentered it. And that basically symbolically means the U.S. has returned to the stage. He wants to prove to the world that the U.S. is a leader on climate. But there's a lot of catching up to do there and a lot of having to prove that the U.S. can commit to the Paris climate goals, which essentially is a cooperation with the entire world to cut climate pollution, but also address lots of harms imposed by climate change. So what does the U.S. need to do to prove it's serious? Money. Mm. That is the big area that the U.S. still is lagging on. Why are we lagging in the money aspect? Why are we not running them their money? Like, what's going on there? (laughs) So, again, looking back to when we agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement, the U.S. promised $3 billion to something called the Green Climate Fund, which is this fund that helps developing countries invest in clean energy, acknowledging that rich countries have had a long time with fossil fuels heating up the planet and now can make that transition to clean energy much more easily. What we're now trying to ask developing countries is to leapfrog fossil fuels to clean energy, and they need money to do that. So the Green Climate Fund was a fund set up where developed countries would pay into this fund for developing countries. Um, And the U.S. promised at the time $3 billion. We've delivered $1 billion of that. So $2 billion is still outstanding. And part of the reason this is so hard is because that needs to be appropriated by Congress. Mm. And if we remember, Congress has more or less been controlled by Republicans for a while. And Biden did get that $1 billion from the Democratic Congress, but it's going to be hard to see how that gets through again next year with Republicans in the House. We're looking ahead to 2023. And... We will very much have a divided Congress. Are we on track to do what we need to do for this fund next year? Like, what progress are we expected to make? Honestly, on the funds that need to come from Congress, I think it's going to be a real uphill climb to see that in reality. There are some things that Biden has some discretion to fund, probably not the $2 billion for the Green Climate Fund, but Biden has also promised $11 billion on other kind of climate aid to developing countries. He's asked for some of that to come from Congress, but there's also agency budgets that he can redirect some funds, especially for agencies that work in the global space, to focus specifically on climate. So he has a bit of wiggle room, but it's going to be hard. It's especially hard because This whole area is such a thorny debate and polarized debate with Republicans just staunchly saying this is not the U.S.'s responsibility to help the rest of the world, even though historically we are the biggest polluter. 
you've mentioned other funding, and I know there's something that the U.S. is paying almost like a climate change reparations. What's what's going on with that? This was a major outcome from the latest International Climate Change Conference, um, commonly called the COP. My colleague, Umer, reported on this extensively that um, the biggest outcome from that was this commitment to loss and damage, which is another way to call what you said climate reparations. The idea behind loss and damage is the U.S. and developed countries are responsible for creating this mess we're in. And the rest of the world is going to have to deal with the consequences. We know that places like Bangladesh are already feeling the worst impacts from climate change. Pakistan this year saw devastating floods. So we have this huge problem in basically the rich getting richer and the poor suffering from this changing world and rising extreme weather. So loss and damage was a commitment by developed countries in this latest COP to acknowledge that there has been damage done to the rest of the world and that the developed world, the historically biggest emitters, bear some responsibility to helping other countries adapt and cope. This is such a thorny area because rich countries are very wary of saying that they're responsible to pay because this is a lot of money we're talking about. So the COP committed to at least addressing that this exists, that loss and damage should be a commitment going forward to helping developing countries deal with the effects of climate change and not just creating this fund for addressing clean energy, which is historically what we've seen. We didn't get much specifics from this conference of what that looks like. I don't have specific numbers for you. It was just a very vague framework. So that's something I would expect we will hear more about next year. Yeah. And I should say reparations is my word and uh, not theirs. I mean, I I don't think the United States government is too keen on the word reparations just because uh, that would open a lot of doors. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) totally right. I've actually just I've seen that phrase used a lot more in conservative media Mm. in trying to create alarm over the Paris Agreement and climate action in general. So Yeah, it's a difficult area. It's, I think, a sign of progress that there was some agreement at this COP, but there's going to be a lot more debate to come. So I'm a person that leans towards optimism, but I'm going to put my little cynical hat on for a second. I mean, both domestically and abroad, what's different about our climate change policy this time around? Does it does it seem like we are actually going to follow through on these things? Or is this just more talk? I think it's different this time because of some some circumstances that are different here that weren't the case for the Obama administration. And then you have Trump come in and reverse everything. A couple of the big changes here uh, comes back again to money, that we have a law passed that commits to 10 years of tax incentives and rebates and funding for programs. There are also lots of changes in the marketplace where clean energy is this grown-up industry now in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. We also see electric vehicles starting to really take off domestically, just rising sales, which 
are going to likely climb with the new incentives. And then we obviously have rejoined the Paris commitment. But I think particularly domestically, we are going to see the situation change. Climate change and clean energy, uh, while it's still this polarized debate on the federal level, in the business community, in um, honestly lots of red states, clean energy has taken hold. And I think we've seen these these shifts that change the conversation. So we're not talking about if this works or if this technology can take off. It already has. So there's an actual real economic case that solar is cheaper than installing new natural gas pipelines or coal certainly is no longer a viable option economically. So you don't just have the moral case anymore. You have an economic case, you have a social case, and also rising awareness of pollution and what that does to the human body, I think all come together to make this this era different. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we'll go from global to personal. This is The Weeds, and we're back with senior reporter Rebecca Lieber talking about what we can look forward to when it comes to climate policy in 2023. So far, we've been talking about these big picture solutions and what the United States government is doing. But there is that question of what we can do on the individual level. And, you know, I'm not talking about the paper straws or composting, which shout out to everyone who composts. (laughs) I am one of you. But what are ways people can think more greenly? And I think in particular, ways of taking advantage of that tax credit that will be implemented next year. I'm all for people thinking about the areas of their lives they can do something. I do this myself with my eating habits, with waste, just trying to think where are some of my biggest impacts. But I'm going to leave that aside for a second. There are plenty of guides on how to do that. I have some other tips of what people can do. One thing I would suggest that everyone do, especially if you're a homeowner, is a home energy audit. This is something where you can contact a professional to come in to evaluate your space for its energy efficiency and just general energy needs. If you have no idea what that is or you don't remember the last time you did it, it's probably time to do this. There are incentives in the IRA that help lower the cost of this audit. And the reason I'm suggesting that as opposed to just jumping right ahead and installing a heat pump in your home, is because this is not a huge cost relative to lots of other home renovations. I think it runs in the $100 range for getting this assessment. And the solutions aren't always like doing this huge renovation. Sometimes it's sealing off your windows, Mm -hmm. or it might mean different kinds of materials for insulation. So I think that's a great place to start. Even if you're not doing a home energy audit in a very formal way, you can do this informally by just looking at what you have, taking an assessment of what appliances run on gas versus run on electricity, how old are they, maybe looking up a bit about the efficiency of it because it might actually save a lot of money to upgrade to something more modern, especially if you're replacing something like a furnace with a heat pump, which just is more energy efficient, you might save a lot of money on your bill. There will be more 
information coming from the White House on exactly how you take advantage of these credits. I would watch the IRS, which will have tax guidance on this. I also have a story coming on Vox explaining this in hopefully very uh, simple terms (laughs) because it, it does get complicated fast. That's one area I would start with, which does target homeowners more, but I'd love to talk a bit about renters too. Yeah, I mean, you and I, we both rent in D.C. I mean, looking at housing prices, probably going to be renting for a while. So (laughs) what are some things that people who rent can do? Yeah, I think about this a lot as a renter of what I can do because, sadly, there's a lot of this law that doesn't apply to me. (laughs) (laughs) One area that I personally am starting with is I have a gas stove. Not my favorite thing. Um, (laughs) Gas is really unhealthy for you to breathe in. I also have a gas oven, whole other story, but I don't like what it's doing to my air quality inside. So one thing I am looking at doing next year is buying a plug-in induction cooktop, which isn't like a full renovation that I can't do on my apartment, but you just buy it and like place it on your stove and it just plugs in and you can use it kind of like a hot plate, but works much better. Induction isn't like the electric stoves people um, hate. (laughs) It's something that uses a magnetic field to heat up your pans a lot faster. So that's like a very small thing that I'm thinking about doing next year as a renter. Another thing I am thinking about how to approach um, is Honestly, my landlord could save a lot of money by also taking advantage of IRA tax credits. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm really trying to do my landlord huge favors here, <laughs> but um, my personal situation, which not everyone is in, is I don't pay my utilities, but the landlord does. So for a building that runs on gas, there's actually a huge incentive to um, to change to electrification um, and take advantage of credits. That sounds like a really like big thing to try to tackle. Um, I'm not sure yet exactly how it will work out, and we will get into how to strategize this <laughs> in just a second. But I I have heard from a friend who, after reading my reporting on gas stoves, actually convinced her landlord to change out to electric appliances. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. is wild. I need to get more from her on how she argued this, but I know the art of persuasion. It's a small thing, um, but that that's just one one area I'm going to try to flex my power as a renter. Yeah. How should we be prioritizing and strategizing going into 2023? So this is my last tip on what you can do, which is to think bigger than your own consumer bubble and think about how you can influence change on a bigger level. That sounds like a really big goal. Because it is. But I wrote a story earlier this year on how activists approach this. How do you break down this big lofty goal, climate action, into the smaller steps that are needed? So the tool that activists use is called power mapping, which is basically this approach where you're identifying who are the decision makers and who is for and against your cause. The idea is you get as specific as possible with a goal. So let's say mine is convince my landlord to switch to electrification. Mm -hmm. I'd plot myself kind of on this chart of I'm not super influential as a single tenant, but I am very for this. Then I can start thinking about the community around me. 
Who do I know? Who does the landlord listen to? Who is influential in this space who I need to reach to then reach the decision makers? Then I start thinking about my neighbors, maybe some community organizations that could help me that are working on things like electrification. So that's where you start building your campaign to kind of leverage different access points to ultimately get this goal you want. I think this can apply to a lot of different situations. Um, You can do this at work. A lot of people are. We've seen this in the tech industry where more workers are organizing, trying to get companies that are huge polluters with their data centers, trying to commit to 100% clean energy. And they're doing the same thing. They're trying to build networks. So this is all about building community, thinking about your power beyond just your purchase power, because I think that's where we're going to see the biggest change when it comes to climate change and climate action is when we think beyond ourselves. Going into this year, is this the most optimistic you've been about addressing climate change in a while? Like, have we seen a comparable time to this or are we like embarking on kind of this new frontier? I like that you've asked, is this the most optimistic you've been in a while? (laughs) Because a lot of people ask me, how optimistic are you? And I usually, I have to give a a big reality dose of how tough the challenge is, how late in the game we are to addressing it. A lot of this would have been easier if we took stronger action decades ago. We're in this world that is scary, that is going to see worsening extreme weather, But as far as our commitments go to doing something and taking action, I think this year is, I think, the first year in a long time I could say I saw progress on this, that we ended the year in a better place to take action on climate change than when we started. All the areas that we've talked about, from the Inflation Reduction Act to infrastructure spending— to this global methane pledge and U.S. action, to what I see in communities and campaigns from climate activists to fight for electrification, fight against new fossil fuel projects. There's a lot of strength in the climate movement right now, and I think that has really built this base for greater action to come. So when I'm reporting on this and talking to people, that's where I find my greatest source of optimism and What really fuels me is talking to the people on the ground who are making a difference by thinking outside of themselves. Rebecca Lieber, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all for us today. Thank you to Rebecca Lieber for joining me. Sophie Lalonde produced and engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Jonathan Hill. We're off the next couple of weeks, but we'll be back with new episodes in the new year. Happy holidays. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.